Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Unfortunately, a lot of this is not new. If you've been paying attention to the way Russia has attempted to frame its invasion of Ukraine as so-called denazification, it comes from a playbook President Putin has turned to before. Think back to 2014. Russia was annexing the Crimean Peninsula. Big protests were ramping up in Kyiv over Ukraine's then-president backing away from a deal with the European Union in favor of closer ties with Russia. As all of that was going on, the Russian propaganda machine was running at full force, calling the protesters in Kyiv Nazis. Back then, NPR's Robert Siegel talked to historian Timothy Snyder, author of the book Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. And Snyder explained why Putin kept pushing that talking point and how it affects the rest of the world watching. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Train Technologies, challenging what's possible for a sustainable world. Train Technologies is reducing one gigaton of emissions from their customers' footprint by 2030. See how they're doing it at traintechnologies.com. What does it mean when the wolf cries wolf? Timothy Snyder poses that question, referring to leaders and propagandists in Ukraine and Russia who denounce the protesters in Kiev's independent square as fascists. Snyder is a Yale historian who writes about Ukraine in a forthcoming issue of the New York Review of Books. He joins us now from Vienna. Welcome to the program. Very glad to talk to you. We commonly say that Ukraine is torn between people who want uh, their country inside the European Union uh, and those who favor closer ties with Russia. I gather closer ties with Russia would mean membership in something that you write about and that I'd like you to describe, the Eurasian Union. Yeah, I mean, first of all, before we get into all the geopolitics, I would just want to stress that Ukrainians are people like you and me, and the first thing they're concerned about is their daily life and the predictability of their life in their schools and in their jobs. And when they say they're in favor of joining the European Union, what they really mean is they want to have the rule of law in their lives. Mm -hmm. They they want a government that's less corrupt. They want to know what's going to happen from, from day to day. That's what the European Union means to them. It's a little bit naive, but maybe it's basically right. In their neighborhood on the other side to the east is is Russia. And, And here's where things get a little bit interesting and complicated, because Russia under Vladimir Putin has this idea of building up a rival to the European Union. This rival is going to be called the Eurasian Union, and it's going to be based upon a completely different set of values. Um, rather than rejecting the worst of the 20th century as people in Western Europe see it, rather than rejecting fascism and communism, the idea is to draw elements of fascism and communism, what, what seems to be most useful. Rather than being liberal and democratic, the idea is to oppose liberal democracy. Yeah. And for Putin personally, the Eurasian Union, which is at the moment his pet project and his idea of a legacy, will only be meaningful if it includes Ukraine. And for it to include Ukraine, Ukraine has to be some kind of authoritarian regime that seems to be uh, sufficiently under his control. But when you say elements of of fascism and and communism in the Eurasian Union, what what are you referring to exactly? 
It's, it's, it's a bit vague. I mean, what, what happens with the breakup of, of the Soviet Union is that there's a, a natural nostalgia among leaders in Russia to be a great power and to be a superpower. And what that often means is, is an attempt to rescue some part of the history of Stalinism. So perhaps not to say that the terror or the starvations of Stalinism were a good thing, but to stress that Stalin was a victor in the Second World War or to stress that Stalin was some kind of good manager. When it, when it comes to fascism, here things get a little bit interesting because, of course, the identity of, of Russia has to do with beating the Nazis. So it generally means something like the purification of communism from its cosmopolitan elements to making the history of communism something which is really about the Russians. Well, now this accusation uh, that the anti-government protesters in Kiev are, are fascists, so you, you write about how that kind of language resonates uh, in, in Ukraine, given the history of World War II there. Much of the war actually transpired in Ukraine, as you write. Yeah. I mean, calling them fascists is obviously a way to appeal to Russian national sentiment, calling them Nazis in particular, but it's also a play towards America and the European Union, because we know, I mean, if we have any core belief about history, it's that national socialism, that Nazism was a bad thing. So they're called Nazis and terrorists as, as a way to rally Russians against them, but also as a way to prevent us from thinking straight. We're not to see this as a movement of citizens who want the normal rights of citizens. We're to understand that these people can just be reduced to this, this despicable category of national socialism. That's the way this ideology is supposed to work. You cite a, a Russian uh, uh, who is obviously against the Ukrainian protests as claiming that if Ukraine joined the European Union, they would then have to recognize same-sex marriage. That, that's part of the package mm. of being European. That's the kind of argument that's being used on the Russian side here, you say. Yeah, and, and this is really interesting and, and really important, I think. What's happened is that Russian society has become a little more conservative over the years. Um, President Putin has recognized an opportunity there and has steered his domestic policy towards what some might see as a far-right social conservative agenda, where the discrimination of gays um, is front and center. He's using that now not just in domestic policy, but in foreign policy. So he's defining um, it, Russian propaganda, strangely enough, also defines the opposition in Ukraine as either gay or subordinate to a European Union that is gay. The idea is that Western Europe is decadent, and decadence includes sexual freedoms, which, of course, can't be allowed in Russia because they would destroy Russia's Christian civilization. This is a kind of interesting global turn in Russian policy. It draws directly on American anti-gay Christians who, in fact, have gone to Moscow to consult with President Putin about these issues. It's an attempt to create a kind of new ideology whereby Russia can have some, some moral standing in the world. Um, and it, it reaches out to far-right groups in the U.S. and in Europe as well. And in particular, it gives Eurasianism a kind of ideological backbone. It means what they're trying to say is that you Europeans have betrayed civilization. We Eurasians are the real Europeans because we stand for religion and, and we stand for the discrimination of people who behave in a way which we don't regard as conventional. You also write that while Ukrainian authorities say the protesters are led by or they are Nazis, they tell their own police that the Jews are actually running the protest in, uh, in Kiev. 
Yeah, I mean, this reveals the extent to which the propagandists in Kiev and Moscow assume that we don't really pay attention. They think that if they tell us the protesters are Nazis, we'll be all confused, we'll scuttle around, we won't be able to formulate policy. And I think in some measure they're right. I think we are quite, because of our perfectly legitimate convictions about the Second World War, it's easy to manipulate us by referring to these things. At the same time, one of the ways to motivate violence against the protesters is to claim that they are associated with some outside force, whether those outsiders are gays or whether they're Jews. And so in internal propaganda, the riot police are being told that the leaders of the opposition are Jews. So the same people are being defined as Nazis or as Jews, depending on the circumstances. So if people of, as you would say, a fascist bent themselves uh, cry fascist, uh, what does it mean when the wolf cries wolf? It means that we have to be very careful about our own moral symbols. If we care about the Holocaust, as we should, if we care about the Second World War, as we should, this means that we have to be very careful about the kinds of people who are urging us to act on the basis of, of these memories. Calling an entire nation or calling an opposition group Nazis is a very cynical move. And it's a cynical move that one has to resist or else one gets drawn down into it oneself. And then the next time around, one finds that one no longer has anything to hold on to morally or symbolically. Timothy Snyder, thank you very much for talking with us today. It's been my pleasure. This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single-barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Spend time in any American city, and you'll likely encounter someone with untreated psychosis. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our maze-like system for treating severe mental illness, which loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. Does it have to be this way? For the history, the reality, and hopefully some solutions, listen to Lost Patients from KUOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.